0: Father's Day. <laughs> we are, we're in the, the second part of our Lasting Legacy series. If you remember about a month ago, we did part one. That was a Mother's Day. Today is part two. We're looking at Father's Day. On Mother's Day, we looked at three mothers who chose to sacrifice and serve despite the difficulties that they faced. And we examined how that allowed them to leave a God-glorifying generational impact and challenged each of us to do the same. We also started off with some really fun facts about Mother's Day. Now, here's your test. Do you remember? No, I'm not going to test you, okay? But I want to do the same. I want to start off with some fun facts about Father's Day. It can be interesting if you think about and you look at Father's Day and how it's celebrated both in cultures and in the church. It almost seems to follow in the shadow of Mother's Day. You know, I'm not bitter, okay? I'm not bitter, but it does seem to, 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 to be outshadowed, outshined by Mother's Day. And that has a lot to do with how it came to be. It came to be almost in the shadow of Mother's Day. Was was, <laughs> was founded in 1914, and that was six years after it was first celebrated. So it was first celebrated, and it took six years for it to become a nationally recognized holiday. Father's Day... Uh, was first celebrated in 1910, just a few years later, a couple years later. And it was uh, 56 years after that, 56 years after that, before Lyndon Johnson asked everybody to celebrate it on the third Sunday of June. All right? It wasn't even like a national holiday yet. And 56 later, we're like, hey, we should probably try to do this on the same day. So if you guys feel like it, you know, celebrate it on the third Sunday in June. And then later on, Richard Nixon made Father's Day an official holiday, and this came six decades after Mother's Day, okay? Kind of in the shadow of Mother's Day. There was a a push in the 30s to get Mother's Day and Father's Day combined into Parents' Day, right? And this was rallied against largely, can you guess by who? Retailers. (laughs) right? Because June historically is one of the lowest months for sales in retailers. And so with Father's Day being in the heart of June, it was marketed as, quote, the second Christmas for dad, an opportunity to buy all those neckties, pipes, golf clubs, and other dad things that they needed, right? It was retailers who fought to keep it separate, not even the kids, okay? Now, the origin of Father's Day was it was in the to mimic Mother's Day because the lady Sonora Louise Smart Dodd wanted to honor her father who had raised six kids after the premature passing of his wife. So she wanted, she saw moms getting honored and she loved how her dad stepped up and raised these six kids without his wife and she wanted to honor him. It comes out of that. Now, Jarvis, we talked about. Mother's Day. She used the political tensions post-war to make to, to concrete Mother's Day into society where it was much more personal for Dodd. She didn't use those, those post-tension politics. She just wanted to celebrate her dad. That's why it's in June. Her dad's birthday was June 5th. Okay, that's why that comes from. It was much more personal, and therefore it took a little longer to catch on. Okay, but What I want to say is though Father's Day may have followed up, may have been a follow-up to Mother's Day, in many ways it kind of seems like it's a shadow and not quite as important, but we all know that just the same as motherhood is a vital part for the family, so is fatherhood. Fathers and father figures, you matter. The role you play in the kingdom cannot be replaced. When it comes to the upbringing of children, the statistics make no mistake. Children vitally need the role of mother and father. And to summarize several different sources, this is what, what I found. Fathers play a major role in, the child, in a child's emotional well-being their cognitive and social development, and their overall sense of well-being and self-confidence. This comes from fathers. Studies have shown that when fathers are affectionate and supportive, it greatly affects a child's development. Fathers are as important as mothers in their respective roles as caregivers, protectors, financial supporters, and models for social and emotional behavior. Having a loving and nurturing father, which nurturing is often considered for mothers, right? Loving and nurturing father is as important for a child's happiness, well-being, and social and academic success as having a loving and nurturing mother. Both parents are vital. Mother and father are desperately needed. Now, I obviously know that fatherhood hits different And Father's Day hits different for all of us. Some of you in here are dads. Many of you are not. Some of you have fathers. Some of you have lost your father. Some of you have had great fathers. Some of you may very well hate your father. Father's Day can be difficult, but it can also be good. Like with Mother's Day, I hope that today that I'm able to speak to everybody, know what your, no matter what your situation is for Father Day. Father's Day, ultimately, I, I hope to bring high, highlight things that we can do all of us that are vital for fathers, but also valuable for anyone who follows Jesus. Ultimately, I hope to make much of Jesus by highlighting how our lives can leave a legacy of testimony a testimony to the glory of Christ and to his faithfulness. Here's what I mean. If you you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Joshua. We're going to be looking at the first four chapters. Don't worry, I'm not reading all four chapters, okay? We're going to be in the first four chapters of Joshua. And what I want to do is I kind of want to highlight something. I want to kind of tell the story and highlight it and use a few verses to support what I see and what, what I think can help us leave a lasting legacy. You know the story, this is the story of the second exodus of God's people. You probably know the first. All right, the first is uh, Moses goes into Egypt, talks to Pharaoh, says, "Let my people go." There's these plagues and these battles. It's a big dramatic ordeal. Okay, go read it. And Moses leads his people out of Egypt. And as he's leading them out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, and there the people are. They're trapped, right? They're trapped between the Red Sea, unable to go forward. And they're trapped behind, behind them come the soldiers who want to take their life. They don't have anywhere to go. They're trapped between these two obstacles. Moses lifts his staff, he parts the sea, and the Israelites walk across on dry ground. We know that story. Here is much like the first. Joshua has now taken over. Moses has died, and we see in chapter one that that God has appointed Joshua to take over for Moses, and he tells Joshua over and over again, do not be afraid, be courageous. Do not be afraid, be courageous. the, The Israelites with Moses, have the opportunity to leave Egypt and enter into the promised land but they sent some spies into the promised land and they realized that in order to achieve God's promise, it was not going to be easy. There was going to be obstacles. The spies went in, they saw giants. They saw strong warriors. They saw certain death. They were terrified. And they came back to Moses and they said, we can't go in. I know that's what God said, but we'll never make it. We'll never survive. A couple of those spies disagreed. They said, no, our God is faithful. He will sustain us. He will carry us through. We must go forward. One of those good spies was Joshua. Joshua's time has now come to lead God's people into that promised land. They've been wandering the desert, wandering the wilderness for 40 years, a generation of people wandering the desert. And their time has come to enter into the promise that God has before them. But once again, they find themselves trapped, trapped by a body of water. Ahead of them is the Jordan River. Now it's fed by the Red Sea, but it's not the Red Sea. And there's, they're called to go forward. They're called to cross this river, but there's no way across. They find themselves trapped once again from the provision, from the calling, from the promise that's ahead of them. And there's no way to cross. The river at this time, it's the harvest season, so the river is at flood stage. The banks did not stand a chance. The water has bubbled over. It is rushing down. It is raging with anger. You see the bubbles and the foam forming as it's hitting rocks and breaking against trees. The river is wild and it is out of control, and they're supposed to cross it they look back they can't go back because that's another 40 years wandering in the wilderness wandering in the wasteland behind them they can't go ahead of them they can't go what are they supposed to do joshua hears from god he receives clear instruction and in turn gives that to the people Once again, they're faced with all of these questions. How are we supposed to move forward? How are we supposed to walk in the promise that God has given us? And God gives them instructions. Send the Ark of the Covenant. God's presence was with them when they left Egypt. God's presence has been with them in the wilderness and God's presence is with them even now in the form of the Ark. He says to take that into the river, have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the raging waters. What kind of faith must that have took to go out, see the the fear that they must have felt, the hesitation that they must have felt, to see that they're supposed to walk out in this raging river, but they listen and they obey thanks to the leadership of Joshua. The people hear God's message and they obey. The priests begin carrying this ark into the river. The moment their feet touch the water, where it's flowing down out of the Red Sea, it stops. It begins to stack up, scripture says. The part that's flowing down out into the other rivers and other ways continues flowing. And in almost an instant, once again, the Israelites are walking on dry ground. God has done it again. God has parted the water once again, and the Israelites are able to walk through on dry land. Now, as they're walking across, Joshua has 12 of the leaders of the 12 tribes, he has 12 of them pick up these stones as they're going across the water, so that when they get to the other side, they can stack these stones up as a pillar. And when they reach the other side, the water begins to once again flow freely. And Joshua has these men stack up these stones. And this is what he says in chapter 4. This is verses 21 through 24. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us when we passed over, so that all the peoples of all the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you fear the Lord your God forever. Joshua had begun his leadership, and he had begun it by facing an incredible obstacle, And he used this moment to say, let's set up a pillar so that we can leave a lasting legacy. When people look at the lives of the Israelites, when they look at those stones, they're going to have a testimony to the faithfulness and the goodness of who God is is through their trust and obedience they found success and then they placed this testimony to the next generation. We are called to leave a lasting legacy. The way we do that is as we navigate the obstacles and the difficulties of life we leave up our own testimonies as pillars to the next generation saying look at how God has been faithful in my life. As you navigate life you will certainly Come up against obstacles. You will find yourselves trapped between between the the wasteful wandering and certain death. You'll find yourself trapped between the rock and the hard place. We'll have to ask questions like, how am I supposed to handle this tough news that just came from the doctor? How am I supposed to face the fallout of this relationship? How am I supposed to handle the nuances of a stressful workplace or, or difficult teachers if you're still in school? How am I supposed to deal with the difficulties that life has set before me when life doesn't go as planned? The list goes on. Your life gains significance when you realize it is not about you, but about Christ. And as you come up against this inevitable rock in a hard place, your decisions should have one goal. How do I glorify God? And like Joshua's stones that they set up, your life becomes a pillar of testimony to, to the next generation. And you're able to leave a legacy when you allow God to act faithfully in those moments. There's several things that Joshua does. several things that the God's people do that I think can allow us to have these moments. When you're facing the news from the doctor, you're facing the hardship at work. When life hasn't gone as planned, what can you do to leave a legacy? The first thing that I see Joshua do is he takes action and he leaves the outcome to God. He takes action and leaves the outcome to God. They, take, they faithfully walk out into the water despite the fear, despite what could happen, despite the fact that they could be washed away, that they could lose their life. They don't know that God's gonna part that water, but they faithfully act and let God control the outcome. Uh, how many of you have seen The Chosen? I've talked about it a few times, right? I listened to an interview this past week of the director and kind of creator the he has a team, but the creator of the chosen. Um, he's kind of been wrapped up in a viral controversy because they do a lot of behind the scenes stuff and they post it on social media and somebody noticed a like three inch rainbow flag hanging off of a camera. And yeah, you can get okay. Church church is uh famously not handled these situations well, okay, and so he's faced some outrage, and uh, he had this opportunity to come on and get interviewed about the show, and uh, interview about that situation, and he said some things that were pretty impactful to me. The, whole, the chosen has been an incredible success. It is crowdfunded, and it is the most viewed crowdfunded film project ever. All right, and it's if you watch it, it's incredible, okay. And so, there's this this has had incredible success, but it came out of failure. Right. He had actually created a, a secular film series that was supposed to, you know, set his career path off to new heights. It had all these acclaim he was excited about it. It was the project and it failed. And it broke him. Um he and his wife through that season, we're studying scripture, and they had got to a place where uh, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. They just couldn't get off of it. They were reading it every day, and then he gets a message from somebody he doesn't know, and they said, hey, the Lord just told me to tell you that you're responsible for the loaves and the fish. You're not responsible for feeding the 5,000. And there's this moment where he had this breakthrough, that when God calls him to act, God calls him to bring the loaves and the fish, to bring his talent, but he is not responsible for the outcome. So with The Chosen, he had this vision where he wanted to create this, this series throughout the Gospels where Jesus wasn't the main character, the disciples were the main character, and there's a lot when you're going to do a, a long series, there's a lot of historical context and study and things that, are, that you have to kind of use your imagination and say this is plausible based on all these different things, tradition, and all these different studies, but we don't know what happened for sure. And so then there's critique that comes from that because this stuff didn't happen in the Bible. Why are you putting it in your show? How could you do such a thing? And there's, so he knew he was going to get critique. And now he has faced critique over all kinds of different things, especially this flag that brought all this up, right? And his point was, I was terrified to start this project because it could flop. I was terrified to start this project because I could receive criticism. But the Lord told me that I was not responsible for the outcome. I was responsible for bringing the loaves and the fish. He had given me a vision. He had given me the talents and the giftings to to bring this about, and so I just acted. I didn't know what the outcome was gonna be. I just acted. There's a part of our church that has the same story. It's a recent one. You guys, uh, if you've been involved with our life group, I think it's been um, a huge success by my standards, Uh, but I was a little worried to start it. When I, this was, you know, late last year, the Lord had kind of began to stir this idea up in me. And I immediately was like, ooh, I mean, the the average person who says they go to church regularly goes once a month now. And I'm going to ask my people to go twice a week. church on Sunday and small group on Tuesday. Then there's the idea of like, well, when do we meet? Cause we're not going to be able to meet at a time that's available for everybody. Somebody's going to get left out. That's going to be hard. How do we handle that? Then there's the, how long it takes. It could go. It's good. I mean, trying to rein in the conversation, but also letting people have the freedom to talk. There's all kinds of difficulties and things that can go wrong. And I had all these different ways. I was trying to talk myself out of it, but the Lord said, just act. You're not responsible for the outcome. And we haven't got everything right, okay? We have not got everything right with it. But it has been an incredible Part of our church hearing how God is moving in your lives, being able to be vulnerable, that getting to know each other, getting help in times of need, all of that has stemmed from those conversations. It has been incredible to see God move. Times where I've had thoughts that I wanted to say, been like, you know what, I'm not going to say it. Somebody else from the group will say the exact words I was thinking because the Holy Spirit needed to get a message out and He did it in those in that group. It's been incredible. Now, a lot of you have said, when are we starting it back? Okay, lots of you. I've heard this from multiple people. Not Tuesday, the next Tuesday, okay? So a week from Tuesday, we're gonna start back with the light group. It's not mandatory over the summer. People are gonna be traveling. People are gonna have work skills. So it's not mandatory. But if you have been one of those and you want it to start back up, we're gonna do it in two weeks, okay? And I'll send out reminders. Again, it's not mandatory. If you If you have stuff going on in the summer, understand, we'll unpack that. But all of that came out of the fact that God said, act. Don't worry about the outcome. I'm in control of that. Where in your life has the Holy Spirit been stirring your heart, been saying you need to act in this way? Where in that moment have you been afraid of the raging waters? Have you been afraid of the way forward, afraid of what could happen and it's held you back and kept you from taking that step of faith? God has always been faithful. And the way we leave leave a lasting legacy is by stepping out and taking action in those moments, no matter what we think the outcome might be. And look, you might flop, you might fail, but God is in control of the outcome, not you. He simply wants you to set foot into the river. He wants you to act. This becomes like a superpower. When you're not worried about the outcome, you're able to live a life that is counter-cultural. You're able to be in the world, but not of the world. You're able to lead, you're able to sacrifice, you're able to serve, you're able to do and behave and live like Jesus and not be concerned about what others might say or feel or think. And we see that with Joshua. He knows that God is on his side and he's acting faithfully and he pulls out, there's two Kind of principles I think we can live by that I want to highlight here. There's a lot of principles, but I want to highlight two of them. The first one is this Joshua leads with a gentleness. Now, that's not a word that fathers really like to hear, (laughs) but he leads with a gentleness. He he comes, he has the authority of God. He has met with God, and God has told him he is to lead the people. But what we know, we see in verse 3, or in chapter 3, verse 7, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of Israel. So they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Joshua has been appointed as the leader, but he has not been proven as the leader yet. So no doubt, now this is just kind of looking into the situation. The Bible doesn't say this, okay? But there's no doubt there's people in this group that aren't sure that Joshua's the right guy. They're not sure that Joshua is the leader. I don't know if you've ever had to lead somebody, a lead people who you haven't been proven to yet. It can be difficult. I had a service manager. She went from Baker to service manager. She was not service manager in material, and it was a long few months. She wasn't a service manager long, but it was quickly proven that she was not the, the right leader. And she was trying to lead people that she wasn't proven to yet. And I had some very strong-willed Jamaican women. And I don't know if you know any strong-willed Jamaican women, but they sugarcoat nothing. And they love to argue, okay? And, And so this lady had a hard time leading those people. Joshua, in the same way, no doubt had a hard time leading these people, but he comes in with clear precise instructions from the Lord. He has authority and he has a power and he uses that. Okay, he uses that authority. He uses that power to lead people, to lead these people into a miracle, but he does it with a gentleness. Here's what I mean by gentleness. We, we know gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. We see that in Galatians 5, right? In Galatians 5, it highlights gentleness. The word it uses comes with this, Imagery, okay? The word here is a military imagery. It's a military word. It's this, this vision of a Roman centurion riding on a horse. All right, that's the gentleness. It's power, it's might, it's authority, but it is under control. It's not timidity. A lot of us think that to be gentle means you have to be timid or to be passive. That's not what the Bible means by gentleness. Gentleness is power under control. And that's how Joshua leads. And that's how we are supposed to interact. When you come up to people that, that might rub you the wrong way, or you're called to, to speak the truth or speak with authority, you have that authority. You're not supposed to become a doormat. You're supposed to become a, a horse under control. All right, mighty, fierce, dangerous, but under control. Now, this is really important for fathers. It's important for everybody. But I want to use my father to, to highlight this for a moment. I didn't tell him this was coming, so he, my apologies. I was in a car accident when I was uh, a new driver. My brother and I were uh, horse playing behind the wheel. Don't do that. Um, and I had my car was nothing fancy, but it was my car, and it had the ceiling was separating. The fabric was separating from the ceiling, so it was kind of like I had a chandelier in my yeah, car. Okay, yeah. and it's just kind of hanging down. And if I sat up too tall, it would tickle the top of my head. Okay, yeah. but I had these holes in the in the the fabric that was hanging down. My brother and I are coming home from the dentist. He reaches over and he grabs my beanie. Right, he grabs it, pulls it off of my head, and shoves it up in one of those little holes. Right. Oh, And I was like, no, he didn't. So I'm fighting with the fabric and I'm trying to get out the the beanie from out from above my head and moving forward, not looking forward. And uh, you can see what happens, right? I get the beanie out. I look ahead. I hit the brakes, but not in enough time. I slam on the brakes. My car nose goes down and I go up under another car jacks my hood up the hood of my car stayed messed up for the rest of its life okay it was never fixed but luckily the person in front of me knew me because I played football with his son it was I, the, the Lord showed, showed his favor okay the cops weren't called nobody was injured it was it was best case scenario right my mom and stepdad they come and they get my brother and I we go home my mom forces my brother and I to call and confess our sin to our father and my father he's he's got some authority He's got some power. He's got some might. And you know how like if you misbehave in your car and your parents are like, you're getting a spanking when you get home. The terror that you feel the whole ride home, right? So I've confessed to my father what has happened. And he's like, okay, we're going to talk about this one when, when when I get there. The rest of the day, terror. Okay, I just know that I'm about, it's not going to be great. Okay, I'm petrified of what's going to happen. Like I remember he gets to the house, uh, the it calls my brother and I. We go outside. There's this like concrete patio area. It's dark now. There's this uh, security light outside that is orange. Like it, I don't know why it's orange, but it's bright orange. My brother and I are lined up against the wall, ready like we're at the firing squad. Like we, <laughs> it's dark, but there's this orange hue. We're against the wall. Like I'm terrified. <laughs> what is about to happen to us? And I I can't remember the exact words but I'll never forget the tone. It was powerful. It was authoritative, but it was under control. My dad had been in a car accident. He had seen the things that can happen from there. My dad has older than I. He knows the damage that can be done behind the wheel of a car. He knew things that I didn't grasp as a teenager. I think about my daughter's driving and it terrifies me because I know the damage that could be caused, the loss of your life. Well also someone else's life, permanently injured, he knew all of that truth. I didn't have a grasp on it. And he talked to us with a, I mean, there was consequences, okay? But he talked with a gentleness, but an authority and a power that to this day, decades later, I don't remember what he said, but I can't remember, I cannot forget how he handled the situation. A gentleness, a calm, a controlled authority, controlled power will change not only your life but change the life of those around you. Joshua led with that gentleness. The way you interact with others, it can control. It it changes the life around you. You will face the difficulties. You will face moments in the workplace. You'll face moments in the family room when you see someone being bullied or belittled. There will be times where you have to stand up for truth. Where you have to to discipline your kids if you're a father or a mother, times when you have to voice your anger to your spouse, your frustrations to your friends, those things will happen. But the way you handle that frustration, the way you voice those problems, you don't become a doormat, you become a horse under control. You have a power and a might and an authority in Christ to speak the truth, but you do it with a gentleness under control. The last principle that Joshua leads with is a, is, a, is a ministry of presence. And this time, it was not uncommon for the leader of a group to not be with the people, to have messengers and things like that. And, and it happens later with God. There's a time where that is necessary, okay? But in this moment, in the first miracle that, that the Israelites face under Joshua's leadership, he is right there with them. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 9, we see that Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. The stones are still there today. So they had the stones that they set up on the other side, but Joshua was there on the dry ground. He was there as his people crossed this river, knowing, not knowing what was going to happen what if the water crashed down? What if somebody stepped wrong? What if the, what if they all got washed? Joshua did not let anybody cross without him being there in the middle with his people as they faced this obstacle. He was present with them. He sets up his own stones in the middle of the water that are still there to this day. Sometimes the greatest thing you can do to give testimony to Jesus is to just be present. Yes, of course, is to be present with your kids as a father. You need you don't just need to provide for them, but you need to be there with them. Not just existing in the same house, but to interact, to be present, to participate, to care for, to play with your kids. This means dads, sometimes you're going to have to change diapers. You're going to have to get dirty. You're going to have to wear the makeup and listen to Frozen, okay? I've been there. Be interested. Be interested in what your in- kids are interested. Listen, sometimes these We went and saw The Little Mermaid. Okay, I hate that movie. I'm sorry. It's boring. It's boring. The message is kind of, you know, not not the greatest message. We'll get into that later. Okay, but I'm interested in it. The girls have these little red wigs. They they have like little costumes they could put on to be a mermaid. Oh, you're a mermaid. like I'm disciplined to be interested in what they're interested in because it helps that relationship. Sometimes the greatest thing you can do is just be present we were emotional at the beginning of the service. Lauren lost her father. And I can remember being in North Carolina and Christy, who was Bobby's, uh, Bobby's wife, had this friend. I can't remember her name at this point. I probably should have asked Lauren. But she was just there. I mean, we were. we would get home from the viewing or from some kind of gathering where you're tired. You've been around people. And the friend was just there. If Christy needed something, she would run out and get it and bring it back. We'd wake up in the morning and she had gotten back from her hotel. She was there. She she never said anything profound, never did anything that was like, man, you know, God really spoke to me through. She was just there. Sometimes the greatest thing you can do when people are struggling is just be present with them. This is what Jesus did. He's the God of the universe. Yet, this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is the incarnation. He became one of us. He dwelt with us. He was was present with us. And then, after he died and raised from the dead, he went to the Father and he sent his Spirit so that now his Spirit can fill us and be with us present forever and always, right now and forevermore. The way you leave a lasting legacy is by leading a life that is centered on nothing but Christ. As you make decisions, as you lead others, as you interact with family, as you, that you are leaving stones that are a testimony to how God has moved in your life. Are you present on purpose? Are you gentle? Are you acting in obedience and letting God worry about the results? You cannot do it on your own. You must be dependent on him. Joshua, because of his leadership, because he led the people through a miracle, it says that he was made great in the eyes of the people. And what did Joshua do with that greatness? Built two different pillars that didn't point to his greatness, but pointed to the greatness and the faithfulness of his creator God, you will be faced with temptations. You will be faced with difficult situations. You will be faced with obstacles. Will you live a life? Will you navigate those obstacles in a way that doesn't point to your greatness, but points to the greatness of Jesus who gave it all, who died on the cross that we might have life? That's a life that leads a legacy, one that points to Jesus. Let's pray.